Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, November 1st, we are studying Amos chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. The prophet begins to sing, but this is not a joyful tune. Amos begins a funeral dirge. What has happened? Who has died? The answers might surprise you. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Danzer. Pastor Danzer serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Great Bend, North Dakota, and Peace Lutheran Church in Barney, North Dakota. Pastor Danzer, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you. It's glad to be back. Pastor Danzer, it seems that Amos chapter 5 starts a new section in the book of Amos to a degree. So, So get us up to speed. Where have we been that brings us to this point? Sure. The previous section uh, was all about uh, the cows, uh, and the the dumb cows are the people of particularly northern Israel. Although, uh, even though Amos is a strange prophet who comes from the south, from Judah, and goes up to the north, to the northern part called Samaria or Israel uh, or Ephraim, sometimes uh, he always the prophecy doesn't exclude. Uh, the lower kingdom. It, it's there too. It, it certainly is a warning for them. And in fact, what Amos is really driving towards, what we're going to drive towards today, is 722 BC, when the northern kingdom, Israel, Samaria, Ephraim, is utterly wiped out and destroyed and displanted by the Assyrian Empire. Uh, so the northern kingdom is lost after that date. Ten tribes of the twelve of Israel are gone forever. Uh, and that has always stood in the scriptures for the people of Israel, for Judah going forward as itself the great warning. Now, we're before that's ever happened. Uh, but um, we started the book with all these prophecies against all these horrible pagan nations. Everyone's cheering in the north. There's even a prophecy against Judah, which, you know, your brothers, your, uh, you know, you know, Tough scrap, maybe you band together, but if you can see yourself doing better than your brother, you usually get a little excited. They're a little proud of that. Uh, but then it zeroes in on them. Uh, and, and it turns out Amos is attacking them uh, for their extravagance, for their idolatry, and for their abandonment of the Lord. And, and finally, the dumb cows, uh, the people who are led by their wives and not by their husbands, uh, all of the things we heard in the previous chapter, culminates in this interesting section where the Lord says, look, I've been bringing all sorts of problems upon you, and I've done it in order to call you back to repentance. This is always what we see. The Lord hews his, his people by the prophets to try and call them to repentance. Um, and he, it's, it's, he even comments on how, look, you know, Egypt sometimes repented. Maybe it was a half repentance, but they kind of knew. Sodom and Gomorrah, think of all these things. And yet still you haven't returned to me. Therefore, the time's kind of up. And, uh, and I, I'm not going to be doing these things as much for repentance and a call to, to wake up anymore as I'm going to be doing them as a warning to others. Because you're not going to be around anymore, northern Israel. In chapters one and two, those those oracles against the nations, one of the things that we heard repeated over and over again was for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And so you you have that sense of finality that's being preached there in chapters one and two, that the Lord has reached this decision. He's not going back on it. Chapters three and four then begin to lay out more of the reason why the Lord has reached that decision. And as you said, it, it kind of culminates there in chapter four with that progression of plagues that he lists. And, and as we looked at that text, there are definitely similarities in those plagues that the Lord sent against his people Israel to what he'd sent against Egypt. And so, you know, just thinking about what he did there in Egypt and how there was a progression of those plagues, you have, you have plagues one through nine gradually getting worse and worse and worse until you get to plague 10, which is the death of the firstborn there 
it makes sense where the Lord is about to go here in Amos chapter five. In in some sense, it, it seems that Amos chapter five then is the the culmination of what he started there at the end of chapter four. The Lord said, I've, I've sent all these things. You haven't returned to me. So here comes the last plague in chapter five. It's this, it's this death, right? I mean, is that, is that where, is that a decent explanation of how Amos is progressing to this point? Yeah, I think it matches quite well too with, I mean, the Lord's kind of frustration and complaining about his people through the prophet Amos matches so well with our day. There was a time when people knew what to do when they didn't know what to do. They cried out to the Lord. They prayed the litany. They, they um, fasted. Uh, think, of, think about like Jonah coming in with his half-hearted message to Nineveh. And yet the king says, oh my gosh, well, I don't know. Let's, you know, put sackcloth on everybody. Let's, you know, beseech the Lord. Who knows? Maybe he'll be merciful on us, right? That is actually a very godly response to horrible disasters, to things that we simply cannot understand. The right thing to do is to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Uh, these are the beginnings of repentance. Um, and, and that's the strange part in our day. I think everyone's quick to say why, maybe even quick to jump on, uh, you know, in judgment over God or, or simply to say, well, obviously there is no God. This proves it. That's quick. Uh, how slow we are to beg for mercy, to beseech that he would spare us, which is... Uh, I mean, even the pagans have us beat there, right? They they at least know they're supposed to cut themselves or sacrifice a virgin to the volcano. Uh, you know, how arrogant are we? We don't even call out to our Lord in times of trouble. Mm. And that's been the problem for the people of Israel. That was, that was what the Lord was rehearsing there at the end of chapter 4 over and over again. He says, I, I sent these plagues against you. You should have recognized that they were coming from my hand, given what, what the... Torah says, the books of Moses concerning the, the curses of the covenant. And, and yet over and over again, you get that, that phrase, you did not return to me. And I, I think the, the way that, and this is how the, the guest yesterday also phrased, you know, this idea that they didn't cry out to him for mercy. That, that's what this means, is that they, they failed to recognize that their only hope was the Lord. And so having failed to recognize then that the only thing left is is death, right? That's that's yeah. all. Your 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 guest may have mentioned too. Why didn't they cry out? It's because they didn't think they needed any help, right? Uh, think about the Reformation reading we had was the Jews saying to Jesus, "What do you mean your truth will set us free? We we're not enslaved to anybody, right?" As if they forgot Egypt and forgot Babylon and forgot Assyria. I mean, this is the way wealth. This is the way selfishness. This is the way idolatry, which is always connected to the self in some way, blinds us so that we don't even see that we're in desperate need of rescue. And when the Lord, you know, tries to make it as obvious as possible, you know, we sit there saying, what do you mean? We've never been slaves to anybody. We don't, we don't need help. I mean, I don't, I'm not a charity case, right? Oh, my goodness. Uh, they, this is why the Lord is trying to call them to repentance. So yeah, uh, they, they don't even recognize in a sense their need for rescue. They, they're living high on the hog, and but that is an abomination in the Lord's sight. And yeah, so we've got a word from the Lord here to look at then. All right, so with that, then let's take a look at the text that we've got before us today. This is Amos chapter five, verses one through three. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. So there's the text before us. And the, I think the place to start, Pastor Danzer, is just the, the genre of text that we're looking at. I said in the beginning that this is a, a song of sorts. Um, what, what are we looking at here in Amos 5, verses 1 through 3? Yeah, it, it is. It's, uh, that's what that word lamentation, as we have it translated, is, is a song uh, particular. It's not just a poem. It's a song about uh, destruction. Uh, usually it's the kind of thing you'd sing at a funeral after somebody's already dead. Uh, and that's the kind of the joke that's going on here. I don't know if you call it a joke, but uh, God is singing the death song. And is it's as if everybody would come out of their houses and say, oh, I, I hear the bell tolling. I hear uh, I hear the song being sung. Who is it tolling for? It tolls for you, right? Uh, uh, you're already dead. You just don't know it. Uh, think about what 
Paul says about uh, widows, right? The widow who lives for herself is dead even while she lives. That's the that's what Northern Israel has become. They're, I mean, they're still alive. They're making a lot of noise, a lot of parties, but they're already dead. Or, you know, what the Lord would would say to the to the Babylonian Empire, right? Uh, you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting this very night. Everything's going to be divided. Or how uh, St. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, talking to living people, right, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so those who are yet alive still can be dead. Is that same same thought there in Ephesians 2? Absolutely. And, um, and, and this would come as such a surprise to the people of Israel because they're like, my goodness, our stock has never been higher. Uh, you know, uh, uh, nothing but uh, surpluses as far as the eye can see. We're living, we're living the life. And uh, it, it is strange then. I mean, that's, that's the strange part about Amos, but the way the Lord uses his prophets to, to, to drive this home, you know, so dramatically that this shepherd, this nobody from a different country that we don't like that much would come up and, and preach this word uh, uh, that the Lord is so displeased and so angry when everything to the, to the worldly sense, to, the, to their human eyes, seems to be, I mean, it's never been better. Um, mm. the, the Lord's ways are not our ways. His economy is not our economy. And his, um, uh, the, the things that please him are not the strength of a man or strength of a horse, but it's the fear of the Lord and uh, trusting in his mercy. And, and all of that is utterly lacking here. The same attitude that that the good life that we have now, stock being high, economy booming, those kinds of things, it, that, that attitude that that's, that is the good life, I think is it's not something that goes away. I'm, I'm reminded of the rich young man who comes to Jesus in the gospels and he does not, he's not willing to, to sell all his possessions and gives to the poor. He goes away sad. And you've got the reaction of Jesus' disciples uh, are – well, because Jesus then, he, he comes out and says, you know, it's how, how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples' question is, well, who can be saved? Um, they're surprised by this, that earthly wealth, riches, is not necessarily a, a sign of God's favor and grace. I mean, it seems like you've got that same attitude there with Jesus' disciples, and, and certainly I would say it, it clings to us today, right? It is. Uh, uh, we did a Bible study on this just recently with some of my men uh, in on a morning breakfast, and uh, uh, they were surprised that we would do Amos, and then they were surprised at how perfect it was for our time. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it is. It, I mean, it was a great. That alone was worth the was worth the uh, the trip because absolutely this is the same thing we have today you know we don't have a special word from the lord telling us you know when our time is up uh the lord doesn't have the same kind of vested interest in the success of our country as he does for his particular people israel over whom he was supposed to be king um but uh I, I, there's plenty to learn simply about this this attitude uh which yeah should be the world's and shouldn't be ours, and yet how much does it creep into our thinking too, uh, that, that wealth really is what it's all about, that, that if you have means in this world, I, I mean, that makes, you know, the rich man's question, like, there's got to be just one little life hack I can do, Jesus, and we'll be all fine, right? Uh, and Jesus says, sure, uh, sell it all, the, the, the most impossible thing for that man. So, so I mean, this text then, the, those who need to hear this funeral dirge today, that I mean, who who are we talking to that needs to hear this funeral dirge today? As as those whose death is being announced ahead of time, probably yes, uh, everybody. <laughs> but yeah, most importantly, I mean, it's it's all it's almost always appropriate to take the house of Israel or the house of Judah or Jerusalem and apply it to the church. Uh, Paul talks about how we are the Israel of God, those who trust in Christ, those who've been called out of the crooked generation into the Lord's marvelous light. Um, and, and there is a way in which we uh, get distracted as the church. We get distracted as Christians. We, we end up living just like another one of the world uh, and just as a, a wealthy widow, you know, living for herself. So we too could be dead, even though we think we're alive. And the, and the death is, 
is forgetting the Lord, uh, losing the fear of him, which is the eternal gospel, and giving him glory, as Revelation says, uh, but, but also losing the fact that our trust is in him because we really do need rescue. That's, that's, the, that's what we mean by salvation, rescue, deliverance, something that we were desperate for. Uh, and, and the most foolish thing you could do is not think you're desperate. Yeah. So, so to to return to this this thought of of Israel being dead, the Lord is is telling them there's a funeral. Here's the song for the funeral, and and who's the funeral for? It's for you, Israel. What? Is, and we've talked about the the aspect of the riches that they've been trusting in, but but what's the cause of their death? Why has Israel died at this point in the Book of Amos? Yeah, back up to a couple of verses. Check this out, right? Uh, so God tried to hew them by the prophets, as Hosea says, uh, you know, and call them to repentance, but they they wouldn't return. Uh, so uh, so the Lord says in verse twelve, uh, "Here's what I'll do to you, O Israel, because I'll do this to you. Prepare to meet you, to prepare to meet thy God." Right? That's where that phrase comes from, right here. Uh, Behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the winds and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness, who treads on the heights of the earth. Uh, Kind of a big deal, God, right? Uh, The one who made us, right? The Lord, the God of hosts is his name. You need to be reminded because you've apparently forgotten. They've just met the Lord uh, in Amos' prophecy. And the Lord says, you know, man up. I'm I'm coming to talk to you. Uh, Prepare to meet thy God. Which, if if you have to be told that, it's it's almost too late. So, what does it mean to meet the Lord uh, in your sinful state? What does it mean to meet the Lord unprepared? What does it mean to meet the Lord thinking that you're going to be just fine? Uh, Those are the questions I was about better. to ask you. <laughs> I, Isaiah knew better. <laughs> I, I, Isaiah said, "Woe is me!" As soon as he saw God, right? I'm dead. I'm I'm. Everybody knows this. I'm doomed. There's no way a person of unclean lips can stand in his presence. Moses had to learn that. Moses thought, you know, well, maybe if I ask him, I can see his glory, right? And the Lord kind of laughed. I mean, mm-hmm. I'll let you see my backside, but there's no, you can't see me and live. Are you kidding me? Um, and, and okay, Moses, for all of his faults, was certainly a pious Christian, a believer. Isaiah, for all his faults, was a pious, pious man too. Uh, uh, and their response was repentance. So what happens if you have an impious and and utterly, you know, with no fear of God and with no concern for their salvation, no recognition of their sin, nation of Israel, thinking they're just going to waltz up to God's presence? They're 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 dead. So that's what it means when it says, "Prepare to meet thy God." And uh, yeah, it's the Lord who puts to death. So Israel has met God at the end of chapter 4, and because of that, because they've met God with unrepentance, they've not acknowledged him, they've not cried out to him for help, they don't even think they need help. When they meet him, you get the funeral of chapter 5. But I want to I keep there with that theme of, of meeting God, because as you said, it, it does happen in the scriptures where people do meet God. So, so you, you answered the question, you know, what does it mean to meet the Lord unprepared? Well, turn that around. How does what does it mean to meet the Lord prepared? And I think you've started to answer that question, but but help us to to dig further into that. And I, I think it, it very much relates to some of the things we talked about in our Exodus study with the tabernacle and how the Lord came to dwell with him. So how do how do we meet the Lord in a prepared way? Great. Um not on our own terms, which is always the way we want to have things, uh, but on the Lord's terms. And if he sets the terms. That is how we are able to access him. Uh, in, in the tabernacle, But think about Nadab and Abihu, uh, Aaron's sons who want to do their own worship with their own fire, and they're burnt to a crisp. Uh, and, and the Lord's flame goes out even. Uh, what's the solution? To cleanse the tabernacle according to the Lord's um, word. The God himself provides the fire. That's what's so important about keeping it lit. And by his fire, by his sacrifice, by his institutions, uh, they are able to have access to God. How is Isaiah able to stand uh, despite his unclean lips? Well, the angel is sent from God, and God cleanses him by touching that coal to his lips. Moses is able to see the Lord when when he gets the backside, when the goodness of the Lord passes before him. and all of this is foreshadowing of Christ, 
Uh, he's the mercy seat. He's the covering. He's the shield. He's the one who stands between us and the wrath of the commandments against us. He's the one who's blotted out the record of debts and sins that stand against us. Christ is our shield, uh, the anointed one that the Psalms talk about. The coming in him is how we're able to have access or think about the the tax collector who's praying lord have mercy on me really the word means lord be propitious to me uh, offer an atoning sacrifice for my sake he's he's calling upon christ uh through the through the work of the temple uh, and jesus says that one goes down to his house justified christ is the one by his death and resurrection that makes us right with him to come in that kind of fear and trust of the Lord in Christ and his work for us. That is how we're able to meet God. And so when we've seen, and to, I mean, just to carry that a little bit further, even when we've seen Christ, we've actually seen God, the gospel of John, Jesus there makes this point several times. It's, I believe it's to Philip in John 14, where, where Philip asks, show us the father and, and that'll be enough. And, and Jesus says, haven't you been paying attention, Philip? If you've yeah. seen me, you've seen the Father, right? I mean, that's a, the same idea. So if you want to meet God, if you want to see God, then look at Christ. And particularly, as you've been putting out, look at Christ in his, in his sacrificial death for you. Yeah, and you want to, I mean, how you meet God matters. You want to meet God. We, if, it, if he were another man like us, then we'd say you want to meet him on a good day, right? When he's in a good mood. <laughs> um, the reality is we want to meet God according to his grace. Um, we will not meet God according to his grace on our own terms, on, on our prowess, on our works, because they're lacking. We will meet God on Christ's terms, and we'll find a gracious God, a God who is loving and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, one who's put his own son forward uh, to pay the penalty and to make us right with him. Um, so we always meet God in Christ uh, if we want to meet him for our benefit. And when we do that, then we meet him for life rather than for death here, as, as you have here in Amos chapter five. And, and just to, to kind of wrap this conversation up on this side of the of the break, Pastor Nazar, how then do we meet Christ according to his terms for the sake of his grace today as Christians? Sure. We meet him in repentance and faith. We meet him by um, recognizing our own sin, which is how we've met God already. Maybe we see that at work in horrible disasters. Maybe we simply see that in our own failings. Uh, or ultimately, God's word discloses what even we couldn't believe, uh, that, that our sin needs nothing less than a rescue. And then it's to trust in Christ Jesus. To, faith comes by hearing the word about Christ Jesus. And he gives us his gifts, his name in holy baptism. And where he puts his name there, he's here to bless us, not to curse us. And in his uh, fantastic supper by which he touches our lips and cleanses us, takes our guilt away uh, and, uh, and, and makes us his own as well. And in those ways, then, we meet the Lord, we meet God, not for our death, but rather for life where he takes us, raises us from the dead. He, he transforms this funeral liturgy into a, a joyous song of, of resurrection. That's what we're looking at here in Amos chapter five. We're going to go ahead and take our break now, just a little bit early. Uh, we will be right back though. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Daily Chapel serves those who serve the Lord to be receivers of the Word and to remember where our true help is found. Hear God's Word read, preached, confessed, and sung 
in the broadcast of Daily Chapel from the LCMS International Center in St. Louis weekdays at 10 a.m. on KFUO. The broadcast of Chapel is underwritten by LCMS International Mission and Ministry to the Armed Forces. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Friday, November 1st, as we study Amos chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, with Pastor Sean Danzer of Trinity Lutheran Church in Great Bend, North Dakota, and Peace Lutheran Church in Barney, North Dakota. Pastor Danzer, prior to the break, we, we were talking about how the, the people of Israel met God for their death. That's why you've got this funeral dirge being sung here in Amos chapter 5. One, one thing in verse 1 that I want to just hit on briefly, and I think you touched on this earlier, but when the prophet says that this is a lamentation for the house of Israel, who are we talking about in house of Israel? Is this northern kingdom only, or is this wider than that? It's certainly first and foremost to the northern kingdom, and Israel is the name they go by, and Judah would have been the name the southern kingdom goes by. But anyone who knows their history, and the Jews certainly knew their history, and the Israelites, this is one house, right? This is Jacob's house. The house of Jacob uh, is Judah is a son just as much as all the other tribes. Uh, so, so there's no way that the South, reading Amos's words after the fact, or, or looking at the situation can say, well, not my problem, right? First of all, Judah had their own prophecy earlier, and, and they have their own problems too. But uh, Israel is together on this. Um, uh, so, so it is first and foremost to the Northern Kingdom. That's where Amos is working. That's, that's what his prophecy is for. Uh, but it, but the words, the Lord's word never stands without warning. Uh, think about what Paul writes, you know, that everything was written down in former times, or it happened, you know, for our benefit, but it was written down for our instruction, us who have come uh, in the end of the world here. Uh, so, so even for us, house of Israel belongs to us. We need to heed the word of the Lord and, and hear the warning of, of what happens and, and, and what will befall those who continue to reject the Lord and continue to refuse to repent. So let's take a look then at, at what the funeral dirge actually sounds like. And that, that first word, fallen, this is, this is a word that shows up elsewhere in Scripture in terms of laments, um, but usually it's not Israel is the one who's fallen. Why, why is Israel fallen? What's the scriptural connection that we can make elsewhere? Sure. Fallen in battle, fallen from grace. I mean, it's obviously not a good thing. Um, and what's interesting is this is the first occurrence, I think, chronologically in the Bible of this. Uh, Amos is writing first, but we're used to hearing this in three other places as fallen now is Babylon the great. It's in Revelation even uh, used as a prophecy for the, the end of evil, the Lord's destruction of all of that and his rescue of his people at the last day. But Isaiah talks about fallen as Babylon in his prophecy. Jeremiah talks about Babylon being fallen. Revelation 18.2 talks about it too. Um, so think of how great, I mean, that's a cry of victory for us, right? If you got the news came, uh, fallen is our empire's worst enemy. Uh, and now we have no more enemies. That, that's the best, the best news you could possibly have. But what if the, what if the news comes to you in a foreign land, uh, fallen is your homeland, you know, or, uh, I think of all those TV shows where like earth gets blown up somehow in some science fiction. Right. And, and it's hard not to have a little, like, what does that mean to lose your homeland, to lose, to lose everything you have? That's the announcement here. Fallen uh, is not our enemies, us fallen are you. So again, we, we see Amos using, and like you said, this would be the first time it shows up, but, but that as, as these words are recorded and then read and reread as the Lord intends his word to be, he's, he's taking that language that is typically used in scripture for the enemies of God's people. And he's telling them that it actually applies to them because in their unrepentance, they have been acting the exact same as the enemies of God's people. And so they receive the same judgment. It's that same thing that we've seen Amos do in chapters one and two with the, uh, with the, the woes there and the, the declarations of the transgressions. It's the same thing we saw him do at the end of chapter four. He's doing it here again, saying, look, Israel, you have been no different than your enemies. And so the judgment against you will be no different than your enemies, which is a really shocking and, and a harsh word for the people to hear, I think. 
Yeah, uh, I mean, this phrase fallen, this this pattern of lament is not uh, isolated in the Bible. It's elsewhere. This is this is the cry that has gone out for generations of war. Uh, you know, something similar would have been said by the Romans or the Greeks or anyone else. Uh, so to, to hear this spoken by God about his own people, right, that is an astounding and tragic thing. Um, and, and we know also that fallen... We use this this word fall to describe, you know, degradation into sin, uh, decadence, uh, falling into more and more sin, great shame and vice, as the catechism says. That's at work here, too. And the Lord wants to especially make that connection. They're not fallen because, you know, their army was weaker than a neighbor's. They've fallen because, you know, they've degraded themselves. They've, they've you know, gone after other gods uh, and... Uh, it is a tragedy of of epic proportions, but it's it's not a tragedy that they are innocent of. Uh, it's not they're not victims in this, unless unless you want to talk about how they victimize themselves. Well, and I think that's so. I'm I'm thinking of, um, oh man, where is it? First Corinthians six, I believe, where where Paul talks about that that the saints are, are not about, it's not about judging the outsiders or maybe this first Corinthians five. Yeah. What have I to do with I judging so, yeah. outsiders? Yeah. First Corinthians five twelve. there it is for, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So that the, the, the people of Israel, perhaps this time you might think about it this way are, are thinking everything's fine with us. Look at all those bad guys out here. The Lord says, no, turn the mirror of the law back upon yourselves and, and examine yourselves. See where you have fallen. You've done this to yourselves. And, and again, with that historical context, this is a time of great peace and prosperity for the people of Israel. In terms of their military activity, they're really not being victimized by anyone militarily. The Lord says, you're doing it to yourself. Turn the mirror around. Look at yourself. Return to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and it, it uh, so beyond just to fallen, it's also fallen and never to rise again. Now, this is a direct prophecy, absolutely, of of what's going to happen. I mentioned it before, 722 BC, and we're pretty sh quite sure about that year, is the year when uh, Assyria destroyed and, and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And Assyria's foreign policy was such that they they really kind of assimilated and obliterated peoples. They broke them apart. They separated them. They brought in new people to work the old land. They took the original inhabitants and put them in a different place so that you'd lose all your cultural identity and you would really disappear. And that's why we talk about the, the lost 10 tribes of Israel. That's, that's the Northern Kingdom's tribes, their territories, because those people groups, uh, if you just want to think about it sociologically, those people groups, have essentially disappeared from the face of the earth. Um, and they haven't, there wasn't a remnant that was going to come back from those. Uh, if it's a remnant, it's going to be a remnant that comes with none of their original markings. And, and well, frankly, we have that message in Isaiah and other prophets, you know, that the Lord will pull his people from all nations, except in really, it doesn't mean like we're going to have a big, you know, Israel family reunion it means it's going to be the Israel of God. It's going to be quite a new thing. In fact, the Gentiles are going to be among those peoples now. Um, mm. Who knows? Maybe maybe some of those so-called Gentiles have some kind of weird, uh, you know, very distant Israel blood in them. Uh, but, it, but it's such that as far as God is concerned, as far as the scriptures are concerned, it's not a people group anymore. They are fallen no more to rise. Mm. Uh, there's a theological point here too. If you've rejected God, if you've thrown out repentance and you've thrown out the, the trust in the one who actually can rescue and save, which is what, exactly what you need, then then who else is there to, to, to save you? Or, or think about Job, right? Who can bring a good thing out of an evil thing? Who can, you know, can you raise the dead? Can these bones live? That kind of thing. Um, uh, the answer is always no, un unless there's the Lord. Yeah, no one, no one is left to save if you've thrown the Lord out. And, and adding tragedy upon tragedy here in this lamentation is not only that it is Israel who has fallen instead of the enemies of God, but it is the virgin Israel that has fallen. What's the, 
the added tragedy when the prophet sings of the virgin Israel. Sure. I suppose given all the other things he's talked about and will talk about, uh, virgin Israel is a joke itself, but, mm -hmm. um, but the point, the idea is the maiden, the, the betrothed, the, the young woman who is engaged to be married. Uh, and, and my goodness, uh, our listeners may know tragic stories, but it's, I mean, it's a, sadly, it's a common tragic story where somebody who is engaged to be married and then something horrible happens before the wedding day and, and they go from being a, 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 a fiance to a widow instantly without ever being married. And, and it, so what sense does that evoke in us immediately? I mean, just utter, ugh, it's gut wrenching because it's think of all the things that could have been and now won't be. And, and, and they never even got to, you know, experience the joy of being married. They, they missed everything. All of our anticipation and hope and, and optimism and, uh, everything that stood before us is, is just disappeared in a moment. That's, that's the kind of fall that Israel is having. Yeah. You, you said all, all the things that, that they would have missed out on. And I think that's, that's particularly tragic here. When you think about what the scriptures do with this image that the Lord is the husband, Israel or his church is the bride. What is the, the bride's role in this other than to receive good gifts from her husband who who has only good things and so for israel to miss out on all of that is just it's gut-wrenching it's it's awful it's it's tragic because they've they've ended the marriage before it even got started yep yep uh, one other part from that little section of the dirges uh it also is she's forsaken on her own land uh there's a this is not a a battle somewhere else right uh this is she's comfortable she's right at home everything it seems to be going perfectly uh almost to the point of complacency right and and that's the situation in which this destruction befalls israel and then the other part is and we kind of don't know this as americans we don't know the horrors of a defensive war other than the Civil War, and I suppose 1812, we really didn't have a whole lot of wars on American soil. Uh, we never experienced a 30 years war where the Catholics and the Protestants waged back and forth and Germany just gets ground up underfoot, right? Um, that kind of destruction uh, on your own land is is more devastating, right? Because it, it just, I mean, it destroys everything. It destroys your home and your house and, and your family and, and your way of life, as well as whatever particular things you are looking forward to or your particular life. That's the kind of lost, fallen, um, Amos is piling it on, the Lord's piling it on. This is a, a terribly tragic funeral dirge, the type of, of song that gets stuck in your head because it's, just so awful and and to have that being sung about israel is is just absolutely tragic and it it continues to get worse i would say in verse three what this war that's going to happen on israel's own land when the lord describes the results of it it doesn't seem that there's much hope there yeah um i, I don't think there is <laughs> I, mean, I don't know i have the benefit of hindsight and so do you we know what happens in 722. We know that Israel didn't repent. We know that they are wiped out and gone forever. Um, so, so it's hard for us not to see that. Now, uh, I think we as as preachers, we as prophets, and, and then we as Christians, by extension, are always optimistic. We know that the Lord desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So we're really hesitant to ever pronounce, you know, uh, you know, forget fallen no more to rise, right? Uh, that there is no hope. And I think that's probably right. Uh, there, you know, who knows at the last hour, right? The Lord is always uh, uh, gracious and slow to anger. Um, but but certainly in this case, we're, we're on solid ground to say the Lord doesn't intend to turn this around and he, and he won't uh, because we, we know the reality of, of the fulfillment of all of this. He doesn't turn it around. The message of... Uh, thousands and now there's only a hundred or a hundred now there's only 10 and even that you can see what's the next step i guess would be one out of 10 right and after that mm. 
I mean, that's basically zero. This is right. One of those infinite regressions, the line is uh, approaching zero. That's the kind of destruction we're talking. It's a inverse decimation. Instead of killing 10, 10%, it's only 10% is left. Mm -hmm. And what that means is, is this pronouncing of destruction is not focused on what we might expect it to be focused on the remnant but it's focused on the obliteration um, similar to you you probably observed this before as you were looking through amos with the other guests how the how amos's prophecies are often a little backwards you know um we talk about night and day uh as a hebrew certainly right the 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 brightness comes second, right? I mean, it is, that, that is almost an optimistic phrase, right? Sure, it starts in night, but there will be day. This is the way a Christian thinks about life and death. It's not life and death because death is the end of it. No, it's death and life uh, because we look forward to eternal life. But Amos has it backwards almost always, uh, just, just before in the end of chapter four, right? This is the Lord who makes the morning darkness. It's not who makes the darkness light which is of course what Genesis was, the creation. This is focusing on the, on the, the killing, not the making alive. Mm. And, uh, and, and that's exactly what this reverse decimation, only 10% left. It's not saying, thank God the Lord spared, you know, if, if you can find 10 in the city, like Abraham begged for, this is, um, this is destruction to the point where um, we can forget about that 10%, it's gone. So uh, to to go on to what you were saying there towards the beginning of your comment, how do we, because as the church today, as preachers, prophets today, this isn't typically the way that we preach with complete doom and gloom. And to be fair to Amos, you know, we're taking him three, four, seven verses at a time. And, and most of the guests want to remind all of us, and rightly so, that <laughs> the gospel is coming, right, at the end of Amos' sermon. Um, and, and I want to get there with you today as well, of course. Um, but, but how do we, you know, how do we take this preaching of Amos when we don't have that specific word that says, you know, in certain year, this country is going to fall? How do we take that today and, and proclaim that to our hearers that's going to do the same thing that Amos is trying to do here in the eighth century BC. I think it's, I think we can learn something about our preaching of the law that we have to let it be serious. And, and we, and we can't, in a sense, we can't be too quick or we can't, we shouldn't be too quick to bring in the gospel. There's a way in which we kind of neuter it all by just saying, you know, well, I mean, we all know it's going to be okay in the end anyway, right? Uh, our gospel is pretty anemic at that point, too. It's just, well, Jesus loves you. Uh, we all know that. So we're going to have to suffer through a little, you know, pretend wrath here for at the beginning of the sermon. But God, I mean, it's not like God really is mad or anything. I think the small catechism has it much better, right? Uh, God threatens to punish those who break his commandments. And therefore, we should fear his wrath and not do anything against them. Um there, it's an and, it's not a but. And he also promises grace and every blessing to those who love him and keep his commandments. Um, uh, but but that doesn't take anything away from, from the very fact that sin is serious and that the Lord is deadly serious about it. Um, in fact, the cross itself contains this this preaching. We can't look at the at the crucifix, the picture of Jesus dying on the cross, and pretend this is a light matter. The Lord did not declare us forgiven by fiat. It was necessary, Jesus says over and over in the Gospels, necessary for the Son of Man to suffer, be betrayed, and die at the hands of his cruel men, um, and to rise. Uh, the Lord's punishment that we observe on that cross is the punishment we deserve, and it took nothing less than than God forsaking his own son with whom he is co-equal and, uh, and co-substantial. How, how can that be? That, that is impossible for us to grasp with our minds. But the one thing we can grasp is this is, this is deadly serious. I, I think the, the 20 questions in the catechism ask this and, and answer it quite well too. We, what do we learn from going to the sacrament and, and remembering Christ's death? We learn that um, we learn that no creature could make satisfaction for our sins. Uh, no 
altar at Bethel or anywhere else could could deal with this. It's it's only Christ alone, God, true God and true man, could save us. And we should learn to to be horrified by our sins and regard them as grave indeed. Um, and that the judgment's real. Uh, this is this is look at look at what's happened in history. Look at the Lord's divine history here in Amos. Remember what happened to Assyria. Remember what happened to the southern kingdom too. God does bring judgment, and and to think that we were exempt on any account other than Christ Jesus would be to fall into the same trap as them. That actually doesn't destroy the gospel. It heightens it because it. It, it, it actually causes us to delight in, and, and uh, be restored in the joy of our salvation. And to recognize getting saved is not some casual thing we do on a Saturday night. Getting saved means somebody grabbed us out of, you know, the lava pit by the scruff of our necks. And even though it stung, we said, thank, thank, thank God. Thank you. You've done this. You've, you've rescued me. Um, mm. Yeah, I suppose that... I, I'm not, I can't be proud of being rescued at all. It's a little shameful I got myself in that situation, but I am so grateful and so thankful for that rescue. That is always the way. Every single one of us, whether we live in you know uh, filthy rich America or the poverty of the worst place in the world, all of us are rescued by Christ Jesus. We are saved by the scruff of our necks um, by his death and resurrection. Mm. Back in chapter 3, we were talking about the courtroom scene that is there and how what Amos does there is that he allows us to see that standing in the courtroom as the defendant, we have absolutely nothing to say in defense of our sins. There's no excuse that can be made. There's no justification that we can offer. And so in putting us in that courtroom, he allows us to see that our only hope is to have the righteousness of someone else cover us, a, a, a defense attorney come and offer himself as our righteousness, which which is Christ, the one whose, whose blood covers our sins. And so to take that same idea of, of, of that thought, but now to transfer it not to a, not from a courtroom, but here we're standing in the cemetery and and someone has died and and it's you. What hope do you have? There is absolutely no hope unless someone comes along and raises you from the dead. And so he's, he's doing the same thing, just in a different setting, showing you that there is absolutely no hope on your own. If you, and if you've thrown out the one who can give you hope, then you're really done for. And so Amos, again, is, is painting us into that corner where we've only got one hope left. And it's, it's to return to the one who, though he speaks these words of death, is there to truly give us life. And it's, so it's that same idea. So, so Pastor Danzer, with about five minutes left now, just, just kind of take us toward that with that whole goal of Amos in mind. You know, summarize the morning and, and give us Christ. Sure. Um, to hear the news that you're dead... <laughs> is or or that there is no hope is a shocking kind of word and if it's not shocking that's that's the real problem this is intended this intends to have shock value but it's not shock value just for its own sake this is how grave the situation is um we are dead in our trespasses and sins we're dead in a lack of fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. And if we don't have the fear of the Lord, that means we have no wisdom at all. And, and, and to see that, that there is no hope in this world is tricky because we are looking for hope in this world all the time. We're looking for a motivation, a motivational speaker to come and bring us a hope. Uh, a hope that we can set alongside Christ. Of course, we've got Jesus if it ever gets that bad. But, uh, but also I have hope in my money, or I have hope in my job, or I have hope because, well, things will work themselves out. Ultimately, the gospel is an exclusive message, particularly for this reason, that it, that it allows there to be no hope other than Christ Jesus. That's why Paul says those who, who mourn uh, without Christ Jesus mourn without hope. That's what others do. We mourn differently. We mourn with hope. 
And the hope is that Jesus Christ has come and borne our punishment in our place, that he has suffered a, a great fall and great destruction in order to raise us up. So Amos uh, lays out this funeral dirge and sings it. But we, of course, know the, the Lord who, who met funerals and, and met singers and, and mocked them, who told them to stop and was a little annoyed that people would be singing these dirges because the Lord Jesus has the power over life. He is the one who created the world. He is the one who, yes, turns morning into darkness, but also turns darkness into light. Uh, he is the one in whom we ought to trust, not ourselves. He is the one who, who can raise up. He is the one who's come uh, to, to redeem his bride, the church, who's come to, to build a house for Israel and a house for David. Um, so let us learn the lesson from Assyria. Let us uh, regard our sins as grave indeed, be horrified by them. Let us take the instruction that we've received to see how the Lord was not pleased with most of them and take it to heart. Uh, let us repent over our sins. Let us be afraid of this fearsome Lord. And having true fear of God, then, let us know that he's the one who takes that fear away. And if we fear him who can throw both body and soul into hell, then we have no fear of any other enemy. Because uh, we know this one who has the power to throw body and soul into hell instead has put his son through the hell of the cross. And he's done it precisely to redeem us, to forgive us, to cleanse us, to save us, to, to raise those who are fallen and, and, and cannot be raised by any power uh, except for the Lord's. And he doesn't leave his saints in the grave. Pastor Sean Danzer is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Great Bend, North Dakota, and Peace Lutheran Church in Barney, North Dakota, helping us this morning with Amos chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Pastor Danzer, thank you for your time. My pleasure. When the prophet sings the funeral dirge, our ears should listen. Our hearts should repent and recognize that what he speaks concerning our sin is true. Knowing that we are dead, there is only one hope that we have, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one who goes to funerals and calls forth those who are dead to new life. That is what he does for us still today in his word. Let us repent, let us hear, and believe that good news. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.